You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 28. As you're finding that chapter of the Bible, have you ever... Have you ever been so thankful, so inspired by a moment, an experience, a realization that you found yourself suddenly or perhaps immediately compelled to respond? A story or a picture grabs your attention. You're in the middle of a conversation. The conversation takes an unexpected turn, which then that conversation stays with you long after it's over. A series of events takes place which leaves you moved to take something, an interest, an, air, an idea, a project, a relationship to another level. Sometimes we have these situations or opportunities that present themselves before us and something just happens inside of us. Our heart is touched, our mind is changed, our spirit begins to soar and you just have to respond. This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series focused on this kind of response, the kind of response that we're both inspired and compelled to offer. And in many ways, I'll tell you right from the start, this particular posture of response is the most significant, and yet at the same time, often the most underappreciated way that we can and we should answer what we just celebrated last week, Easter the definitive revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of God's grace and love toward us. And this particular posture that I'm referring to in a word is generosity. This series is intended to help us discover the generous life that God intends for us to live. And we're going to begin, as you can see, all the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 28. And if you haven't been in this book of the Bible before or in a long time, we're coming into the story of a person who at this point in his life's journey is anything but generous. This man is named Jacob. And so far, he has proved himself to be more of a taker than a giver. If you don't remember his story, let me give you a little background. Jacob is the second born of two twin boys. And Jacob swindled his older brother Esau out of his birthright, the right of the firstborn son to inherit a double portion, or if you will, the lion's share of the father's estate of whatever was passed down. And if that wasn't enough, later on, Jacob deceived his father in order to steal the family blessing that had been reserved for Esau, a blessing that designated upon the father's passing who would be head of the family. What you have open before you is us entering into Jacob's story in the aftermath of his handiwork as a trickster. Jacob's wheeling and dealing have led him to become a frightened fugitive, a run from his old brother who has vowed to kill him. Is my mic going in and out? Here we go. Off on, there we go. 
Gonna have to use my big boy voice. Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 19. Or sorry, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's dive in and really look at this, what's happening here. The very first thing we are told is that Jacob, if we could go back a couple of slides, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran, and he reached a certain place. Jacob is fleeing his brother's wrath, and he's on the way to stay with his uncle. And as night falls, Jacob finds himself out in the middle of nowhere, all alone in the darkness with nothing but a stone for a pillow. He falls asleep. And then we're told when he falls asleep that he had a dream. Jacob begins to dream And as he does so, he receives an unexpected vision. Jacob sees a stairway to heaven, a bridge connecting the realms of the sacred and the secular. If you will, life eternal and life here on earth. And as Jacob takes in this image, the very presence of God hovers over Jacob, we're told, and gives Jacob a vision of his future. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, we're told that when he wakes up the next morning, he doesn't just shake off what he's been given as some strange dream. He doesn't go, well, that was weird. Jacob opens his eyes convinced he's had an encounter with the God of his ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, the Lord of all creation. Convinced that he's been given a vision of his future and knowing how easy it can be for us to forget our God-given dreams, Jacob seeks to mark the encounter. And he takes the stone that the night before had served as his pillow and fashions it into a monument of remembrance. He changes the name of the city from Luz, where he is, to Bethel, which is house of God, which he just declared this place to be. But then Jacob does something that I really want us to pay attention to this morning. Jacob, we're told, makes a vow saying, the Lord will be my God, and this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. In response to what he's seen, 
In response to what he has heard, in response to all the Lord has promised him, Jacob vows to give a tenth of whatever he receives back to God. The expression in English to give a tenth, our English translation, is of the Hebrew word tithe. And the word tithe means literally to give a tenth. Next week, we're going to talk more about the word tithe, the more about the history, the significance of this word. But for now, what I want to focus on is not the amount of Jacob's response, but the nature of his response. That's our focus this morning, the nature of Jacob's response. And the way for us to understand this, something we need to recognize as we step back, is that in this encounter, amongst all the other things that are laid out by the Lord, fundamentally, if you were to summarize in a word what Jacob receives, Jacob receives the grace of God. The grace of God. And why do I say that? Because Jacob receives a vision of a life, a promise of a future he doesn't deserve. And it's a vision that as good as Jacob is at conniving others, Jacob could never secure or earn for himself despite his best efforts to do so. And that's what grace is. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't earn. And Jacob, in this moment, gets something that he doesn't deserve, and he gets something that he can't possibly earn or secure for himself. Now, some of you may really know this story of Jacob. You might be remembering, and you might step back and say, well, wait a second. Wait a second, I know how this story begins. I know how Jacob came into this world and didn't, earlier in this story, didn't God already ordain the life that Jacob has? Didn't God already say that he, Jacob, and not his older brother Esau, would receive the birthright and the blessing given by God to his great-great-grandfather Abraham? Meaning, so wasn't Jacob stealing what was already his? And that opens up a whole host of questions, by the way. But I want us just to sit, sit with this. There is a huge difference between how the Lord intended to fulfill his promises for Jacob and how Jacob tried to secure the fulfillment of his life for himself. There's a huge difference between what God intended to do and what Jacob tried to do on his own. Nowhere in this story does God affirm the deception Jacob carried out upon his father. Nowhere in this story does God will for Jacob to falsely represent himself as his brother Esau. In fact, for me, one of the most tragic things we experience in the story of this family is we never get to see how the Lord's plan would have played out. Because everyone, not just Jacob, everyone in this story is always trying to manipulate the situation. The point is... Jacob is a scoundrel. Jacob is a cheat. Jacob is a liar. Jacob is someone who tries to steal the life he wants to make for himself. And on his own, Jacob can only scheme, right? And the scope of his plan, the best life Jacob can see for himself is the one where he gets the lion's share of his father's estate. But despite all this, Thanks to the grace of God, Jacob receives a dream. And if we look again, if we go back and look at that part of the, of the text, God's dream for Jacob is so much bigger and wider than Jacob can imagine, let alone secure for himself. It's more than a double portion of his father Isaac's estate. It's up there on the screen. God promises, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. Jacob receives an undeserved word of blessing from the Lord, the promise of God 
the grace of God to give him a place called home. And he goes on. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob receives an undeserved word of blessing from the Lord. The grace of a place to call home, but also the grace of a purpose to bless others. The grace of the Lord's presence leading, guiding, and securing him every step of the way. And how does Jacob respond to the grace of God? Generously. Jacob responds, as you heard, by pledging to give a tenth of all he has to the Lord. But again, something to zero in on here as that scripture comes up. Jacob's vow is, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. What Jacob gives in response to the Lord, Jacob declares he gives back to God. Jacob recognizes whatever he offers to God can only come out of what the Lord has already provided for him. Out of all that you give me. In other words, beloved, encountering the grace of God, Jacob recognizes everything he has or will have is a gift from God. Therefore, his response is not a matter of giving something to the Lord as a gift, something that he, Jacob, has produced or earned himself. No, Jacob realizes his only response to grace, the only response to grace is to respond graciously, to be, to live generously with all that the Lord has given us. Generosity is not just a response to grace. Generosity is the response to grace. And if you ever pay attention to the sermon title, it's right there in your bulletin. I got it wrong. Because I put generosity is a response to grace. But the more I've dug into this theme... I stand here with full conviction and tell you generosity is the response to grace. And we need to hear this this morning. We need to hear how significant generosity is to our lives because whether we want to admit it or not, we are Jacob. Like Jacob, we are no paragons of virtue, right? We are a broken, flawed people, persons who apart from God's intervention have this annoyingly reliable but ultimately destructive tendency of looking out for ourselves at the expense of others, just like Jacob. Like Jacob, we tend to be takers rather than givers. Like Jacob, we're not above lying and scheming and maybe even doing a little stealing to get ahead, to make the life we want for ourselves. Often it's just the little things we do, a slight bending of the truth here, a minor omission of the facts there, a little white lie that never hurt anyone. Nothing too serious, no big deal, we rationalize until we get caught. And I think perhaps the greatest evidence of this, and it's one among many, and it's not to put other, this is a, all of us reflect this in different ways, is the recent college admission scandal. The lengths that parents would go to to make sure their kids get into the college that is going to secure their future. And I'm not saying that in judgment because I believe we all have that capacity within ourselves. I'm not going to ask any of you how you did your taxes this year. Right? The reality is we'd rationalize to ourselves the little things we do in order to get 
rather than to give. The power of self-deception is only rivaled by our ability to self-justify. And yet, like Jacob, even though we don't deserve it, even though we try as we may and we cannot earn it, God speaks to us anyway. God offers us grace. God blesses us despite our questionable character. God blesses us despite the often disgraceful outcome of our lives. God blesses us with grace, and grace is all around us. Grace so permeates our lives, it's so, it's so ever-present that we actually take it for granted. We take grace for granted. We take grace for granted every day in the wind blowing through the trees, in the sunshine, in the rain that provide energy as well as the potential for growth. We take grace for granted in the breath in our lungs, the clothing on our backs, the roof over our heads, the food on our tables. We take grace for granted in our ability to heal and to sleep. All of it, and so much more is grace because all of it is a gift. All of it belongs to God. Now, some of you, as I'm preaching, have that look on your face like, duh. Like, yeah, of course it is. Everything is the gift of God. We know this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is the most obvious sermon I've ever heard. But here's the thing. And I'm asking this not just of you, but of myself. It's us together in this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. All of life is a gift. We say this. But the question is, is this honestly how we think? Is this truly how we act? Is this seriously how we live? And I say this because when I reflect upon this question myself, I think about the fact that at an earlier age, when we were younger, right, we headed off to school with our names on our backpacks and our initials in permanent ink on the tags of our shirts. We learned from an early age to mark our toys and our books and all our stuff and learned that the concept of ownership is a very treasured possession for us. And as we grow into adults with our independence, we become even more territorial, don't we? I mean, we think and we talk of my house, my car, my phone, my job, my money, my retirement. And it's not that far of a step, is it? It's not that far of a step from perceiving all these things possessively. It's not that far of a step to, from perceiving all those things possessively to then start conceiving and speaking in terms of my family, my kids, my life. It's not that far of a step to convincing ourselves deep down all these things are mine. They're what I've earned. They're what we've got a right to. They're what we deserve for ourselves to keep for ourselves rather than recognizing them, acknowledging all of it being gifts of grace, all being gifts to us given by God. Jacob in this encounter with the Lord doesn't respond out of a posture of possessiveness. This is yours, God, and this is mine. As the Lord extends his promise to Jacob, Jacob doesn't consult with his financial advisor. He doesn't ask his friends, well, what do you think? He doesn't review his net worth statement in order to decide if he wants to invest in God's vision for his future. No, Jacob recognizes what he is receiving is something he cannot possess, but only it can be given to him. And so Jacob's response is the recognition of grace. And that response is to recognize and respond to the grace of God upon which his life is built. And that response is to give what he has away unconditionally by living generously. 
But again, this idea of living generously, unconditionally, this is not easy for us to see. And sometimes our Bibles even don't help us to see this. The slide's going to be put up on the screen. I'm going to devote your attention back to verse 20. Maybe you caught it when I read this passage out loud. But in your Bible as well as mine, it reads, Jacob's response to God is, if God will be with me and watch over me. And then, then the Lord will be my God. What's interesting to me is that it's been translated if. When digging deeper into the original language, not only can it be, but I think it should be translated since. We've translated it if when it actually can be and should be translated since. And for me, this is significant because the variance between the words if and since are not only vast, but it's also telling. I think we prefer that to say if rather than since because it is easier and tempting to read Jacob's response to the Lord as conditional. Because we live our lives before the Lord conditionally. If you do all these things you've promised to be Lord, then I will give you back out of what you've delivered. We prefer, we are more comfortable with conditional generosity. If and when the Lord blesses me in the way I want, to my level of satisfaction, then I'll give something back to God. Make it simpler. Have you ever said this? I'll be generous when I can afford to be generous. I'll be generous when I can afford to be generous. But Jacob's response here isn't based on the if of God's grace. If God's grace comes through. If God's grace proves true. Jacob's response isn't the offering of some conditional token credit to God. Some possible later compensatory tenth he will give to God as the Lord's cut or percentage on the deal. No, Jacob's response is rooted in his profound awareness of the sense of God's grace. The truth that whatever he had before and whatever he would receive later, all of it, everything came from the Lord's hand. Beloved, our lives aren't based on the if of God's grace. We exist, we are redeemed, we shall endure and thrive thanks to the sense of God's grace. The grace God extends to us is unconditional. Therefore, our response to living generously is to be unconditional. Put it another way, conditional generosity is not living by the grace of God. Conditional generosity is living by negotiation with God. My friends, if you're trying to negotiate with God, you're not being generous. Because anything that you think that you can give to God, you're simply giving back to him. You're not giving something to God that God didn't already give you. The adventure of faith is not discovering a formula See a secret or strategic plan for obtaining blessings for ourselves. No, this adventure of faith that we're on is the journey of learning how to live a life that blesses others, that reflects the grace of God we have been given to everyone. Like Jacob, we begin to live that adventure the moment we start to recognize God's grace in our lives, the moment we capture the vision of all the blessings we have already been given and all the blessings of which God promises us. I haven't always been a pastor. Many of you know this. I had a second career before I was a pastor. And that means, and even before my second career, I grew up in a Christian home. I have spent more of my life sitting in a pew than I have standing behind a pulpit. 
And it's, it was a very weird thing when God called in my life that I spend most of my Sundays back here. And probably one of the things that, that, that sticks with me all the time, and I hope that I don't do this, it's not my intent to do it, is I never see myself as preaching at you. I see myself preaching with you. Meaning as much as I am here, I see myself there receiving the word of God just like you are. That this isn't the word of Pastor Chris. This is the word of God through Pastor Chris, as shocking and as crazy as that sounds. Not only to you, but to me. And in thinking about this, I, 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 I think back to when I would sit in the pew, and I think back to growing up and hearing about giving, hearing about generosity. And I can remember when I first you know, graduated college, or even when I was first in college and started to have some independence on my own, I can remember when I, we were first, Beth and I were first married, you know, and I would hear about generosity, and I would hear about giving, and I actually had people encourage me in the church well, you know what, you can't, you're young, your life's just starting out, you can't give right now, you gotta work and build up to when you can give. You can't afford to be generous now. You gotta wait to get your life started, then you can be generous. And I, I, I all of a sudden had this profound insight, thanks to the grace of God. There was this point in my young, early life that was transformational for me when I realized that if I just kept waiting to be generous, it would never happen. If I just kept waiting to be generous, I never would be generous. Why? Because when I'm waiting to be generous, I'm making being generous all about me. Being generous being all about what I can give. And if it's all about what I can give, then I'm going to keep waiting because I'm never going to think I, ha- I know, I'll never think I have enough. But the shift was realizing I don't have to wait to be generous if it's not about me. If being generous is not about what I can give, but if being generous is about grace, what God gives me, then I can be generous right now. I lived my whole life growing up learning about grace. I believed in grace. I can honestly say to you, I believed in the grace of God. But in that moment, I realized I believed it, I talked about it, but I wasn't living by the grace of God. Because when you live by the grace of God, you don't have to wait to be generous you can be generous now because it's not about what you can give. It's about what God has given you and you give that back to God. It did not be much. In that early point in my life, it didn't feel like much, but it was generous. It didn't seem significant to me, but God was able to do with the little that I thought I had so much more than I could have imagined. So much stuff I didn't think would be possible until I waited until I had enough. My friends, grace changes our perspective, not just on our life, but how we live our life. Grace in this, mo- in this story changes not only Jacob's perspective on his life, but how he lives his life. In this moment, his giving back to God is a mark. It's an outward sign of God's ownership of his life. It reflects this shift of how he will live his life before God. He's gonna live his life before God no longer as a taker, but as a giver of the grace that God has given him by living generously before others. And this, the Lord's vision, how it transforms Jacob, if you know his story, this vision that God gives Jacob transforms him from Jacob the schemer into Israel, the father of a nation raised up to be a generous light to all nations, raised up to be a sign of God's grace for the world. And we get to witness the beginning of Jacob's transformation into generosity in the next chapter of his life. And if you don't know this story, the next chapter of Jacob's life is when he faces his uncle Laban, who, surprise, surprise, ends up knowing how to wheel and deal better than Jacob. 
But if you know this story, Jacob doesn't fight fire with fire. He responds to the greed of his uncle by being generous. And much later, when Jacob eventually crosses paths again with his brother Esau, Jacob attempts reconciliation by way of generosity. We say, we believe we have been saved by grace alone. That's what we say. And therefore we profess that we walk into the future the Lord has for us by grace alone. But I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, more than any other single aspect of our faith, the most tangible and honest reflection of whether or not we have truly received the grace of God, whether or not we actually live by grace alone, is reflected in the response of our generosity. Not how much we take, but how much we give, how much we give back to God. Like Jacob, everything we have, all that we are, is by the grace of God. If we give to God or in the name of Jesus out of a sense of doing something for God, as if we're giving the Lord a gift, then we haven't accepted the grace of God in our lives. Instead, we're trying to settle accounts with the Lord as if we had anything which to offer God that God hasn't already given us in the first place. If you're trying to settle accounts with God, you're, in a, you're not in a position to do that. None of us are. Because everything we seek to give back to God to somehow settle accounts, again, is stuff, everything that God already gave us in the first place. And God isn't looking for that. Living this way. Living this way, always trying to settle accounts with God, always trying to negotiate. Living this way before our Heavenly Father is like a kid who tells his parent, hey, Mom, Dad, I need some money so I can buy you a birthday present. Right? God doesn't need us to buy him a present. When we give, we are only giving back what God has already given us. All the grace God gives us is given to us to handle in trust for God's glory. But giving God glory doesn't mean giving grace back to God. God doesn't need grace because the character of God is grace. The Lord gives us grace. The Lord gives grace to us in order for us to be generous, to, get, to live graciously. That's what makes giving back to God living generously because what we're giving back to God is directed towards the benefit of another person on God's behalf. And God, if you've missed this, extends to us the same grace he gave to Jacob. The same promises he made to Jacob, he extends to us. A permanent home, the destiny of life everlasting, a purpose for our lives born out of the freedom of forgiveness, the truth of unconditional love, the ability to flourish now and forever, the Lord's abiding and eternal presence with us, all gifts we have been given to share with others. We have received the promise of this grace given to Jacob, fulfilled in God's coming and giving to us of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but Jesus is, is God's grace in the flesh. Jesus is the grace of God in the flesh. Think about it, because what does Jesus do? Jesus willingly and completely gives away his life for us unto death. And then Jesus goes even further by giving us more, giving us his resurrected life giving us the realization of the dream of a life that we don't deserve. The dream of an everlasting life we can't manufacture or earn on our own. And grace like that, grace given like that, calls for the response of grace shared. 
Beloved, generosity is not a posture we adopt in order to satisfy God as much as it is to reflect the graciousness of God towards everyone. I stand before you today and I'm telling you what you already know. We as a congregation are on the verge of moving towards some new possibilities. Some important God-given dreams have been incubating inside this community for the last few years. And just as Jacob's stone pillow was transformed into a stone pillar, the time has come for grace. And more importantly, for those to whom we as grace have been called to serve, the time has come for God's dreams to move into constructive action. As we prepare to take our next decisive and tangible step into the vision and mission of everyone, everywhere, flourishing together in Christ, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, if this is your church home, if this is your community, if you share a heart for caring for what we have been given, if you have a hunger for us to move beyond these walls, this campus, and out into the neighborhood to serve others, to impact lives for the better, to bless individuals, couples, and families around us, then I am asking you to give, to contribute financially, not just to the capital campaign, but to the ongoing ministries of grace. I am asking you to give financially out of the grace the Lord has given you. And I'm asking you this not so much for the benefit of our community together. I'm asking this for your benefit. I'm asking you to give back to the Lord in acknowledgement that your entire life, all that you have, all that you are, is by God's grace alone. I'm asking you to give for the glory of what the Lord purposes and promises to do in and through you. I'm asking you to respond not by waiting to become generous, but instead to realize, thanks to the grace of God in your life, you can be generous today. Grace is a beautiful concept. It is my favorite word. God's grace is the foundation of all we are, of all we can do together. We love because God first loved us. We can only give because God first gave to us. In Christ, God gave us everything. Grace is a beautiful concept. But the true power of grace is unleashed in our lives when we realize grace isn't just something to believe in. Grace is the way we can. Grace is the way we were meant to live together, not just by giving, but through living generously, through becoming the people we were created to be, a people who reflect God's grace towards all the world. Amen.